0: Well, take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 21. Someone uh, mentioned to me earlier, hey, where did everybody go this morning? I said, well, I think they're running around serving and they're not in here yet. And I said, or maybe they thought we finished the Gospel of John so they didn't have to come anymore because we kind of had this epic ending last week. You know, we had this climactic uh, conclusion uh, in, in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, where where John uh, seems to wrap up the gospel with this beautiful bow and then presents it to us, and there you go. There's Jesus, and, and I hope I've said everything that you need to hear to place your faith in him as the Son of God, the Christ, and that in doing so, you will have eternal life, right? It's almost like, wraps it up, gives it to us, and uh, you're like, good, we're, I'm good. Gospel of John, got it. Well, there's one more chapter, and so let's read uh, the first part of this chapter, and it'll probably take us a a few Sundays to get through uh, this this chapter in its entirety, but let's just uh, tackle the verse 14 verses this morning, shall we? John chapter 21, verse 1, after these things... Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, well, we'll also come with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. A fisherman's worst nightmare. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat and you will find a catch. So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out of the, got on, on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, a hundred and fifty three. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Father, we thank you that we've got one more chapter uh, here in this great gospel of John that we didn't have to end last week, but we can continue to, to, to grow and learn together. Uh, from uh, this epic uh, account of the life and death and resurrection uh, of, of Jesus Christ. And so I pray that your spirit would now illuminate our minds to help us understand what's going on in this passage, that we'd be careful not to uh, over-spiritualize or allegorize what we see here, but Lord, that we would draw uh, spiritual lessons from this text, we pray for your honor and glory in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you may remember at the very beginning of Jesus' three-year ministry, he orchestrated a miraculous catch of fish, which was almost identical to the one that John recorded here at the end of his gospel. Uh, this miraculous catch of fish in John 21, I believe, must be interpreted in light of the first miraculous catch of fish recorded in Luke chapter 5. And so I want to invite you, as we begin, to turn back to Luke chapter 5, and let's look at this similar miraculous catch of fish. Some even have concluded that this is the same event, and uh, Luke chose to insert it in the beginning of his gospel, and John chose to insert it later in his gospel, but I think you'll see as we read uh, what Luke says here that there are some. Uh, while there are, are some similarities, there are some very clear differences. Luke chapter 5, verse 1, now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret or the Sea of Galilee. There's the first difference. He was in the same location, the Sea of Galilee, but there was now a what? crowd not just his disciples and he saw two boats another difference there not just one two boats lying at the edge of the lake but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets and he got into one of the boats which was simon's and asked him to put out a little way from the land and he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat when he had finished speaking he had said to simon he said to simon put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch simon answered and said Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. The nets didn't break in John 21, third difference here. So they singled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them and they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. From now on you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This was Jesus' initial commission of Peter and his fellow fishermen to join him in reaching the world with the gospel. Ironically, Jesus chose simple minded, hard working fishermen and called and trained them to fish for men. Go back to Matthew chapter four. Matthew records um, this, this interaction without including the miraculous catch of fish. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, in the account of the first disciples, Matthew four eighteen, Matthew says, Now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, and they were fishermen, and he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Well, here in the final chapter of John 21, we see the same scene. We say, see the same exact characters. Um, uh, at least we see Peter and at least two, if not three, of the same fishermen doing what they were doing when Jesus first called and commissioned them on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. What were they doing? Catching nothing. And yet everything was different now in John 21. Jesus had now died and rose again and had instructed them to meet him back in Galilee. Uh, We know that not from John, but from uh, the other synoptic gospels, Matthew chapter 28, probably the most familiar passage in Matthew 28 verse 7, the angel who was there at the tomb, said to the women who came early that morning, go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, behold, I have told you. And it goes on in verse 8, they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And Jesus just repeated the same message that the angel had given them. He said, do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. And then if you jump down to verse 16, Matthew 28, we have the Great Commission. Why did he want them to go to Galilee? What was going to happen in Galilee? Galilee. Well, let's see what happened in Galilee, Matthew 28, verse 16, but the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them and said, all authority is given to me has been given to me in heaven and on earth, go go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so Jesus' rendezvous, if you will, with his disciples in Galilee was all about their mission to bring the gospel to the end's of the earth. In fact, Mark 16:7 the angel specifically called out Peter and said, "Hey, make sure you tell the disciples and Peter." So there was a little specific message given. It's not just that I want all the disciples, I want to make sure Peter's there. And we're going to see later on in this chapter, John 21, that there was a reason why Jesus wanted to make sure Peter was there because he had some business to to finish with, with Peter. And so just like when Jesus had originally commissioned them to follow him, he again here in John 21 used fishing as a metaphor for evangelism. You see that? And so Jesus' relationship with the disciples, and Peter in particular, began and ended with a miraculous catch of fish. This is kind of like bookends to the disciples being called and commissioned originally and then being officially commissioned right, to go out to the ends of the earth. And so this appearance of Jesus to Peter and the six other disciples uh, on the shore uh, of Galilee, again, while they were fishing, in the exact location where Jesus first commissioned them, we can view here in John 21 as their final commissioning and specifically Peter's recommissioning, if you will. And I'm comfortable saying that because uh, the the first three Gospels have as their theme in the final chapter, the Great Commission. And so it shouldn't surprise us that John chose a similar theme or the same theme to focus on uh, in the final chapter, the disciples' mission. And I think that's what we see going on here in more of a veiled reference, if you will, a veiled reference here in the first 14 verses of, of John chapter 21. Now, over the centuries, critics of the Bible have argued that this final chapter seems so anticlimactic that it must have been added later by someone other than John. Typical textual criticism, right? Um, And it's true, I would give them the fact that, that chapter 20 does seem to be the perfect conclusion Uh, If I was writing the Gospel of John, and thankfully I didn't, right? The Spirit of God wrote the Gospel of John. Not even John wrote it. It was the Spirit of God. But if I was writing it, chapter 21 seems to be the perfect conclusion to this Gospel with Thomas's climactic declaration of faith, my Lord and my God, and then John's clear summary of why he wrote this Gospel. Uh, These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name, exclamation point, end of story, boom. Sounds like a perfect ending to me, doesn't it? And yet, no ancient manuscripts of John have ever been found that are missing the last chapter. That tells us that this chapter is clearly original to John, and more importantly, it's not irrelevant, but it serves an important purpose in John's mind and in the Spirit of God's Inspiration of this of this text. So so, I, 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 just simply, you could say this: that chapter twenty-one really is a fitting epilogue that balances out the prologue uh, in chapter one, verses one through eighteen. You remember we we took I think four weeks uh, as we launched into this gospel uh, just to look at uh, Christ's pre-incarnation activity uh, in in verses one through. Uh, 18. And John's the only gospel that starts before Jesus was born. All the other ones start, pick up the story right when Jesus was born. Uh, The others say, hey, let's talk about where Jesus was before he came to earth. Uh, He was the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God. And so there's this great prologue, and so now we have this epilogue. It seems appropriate that books with prologues typically have epilogues. And, and so now we have this epilogue in verse 20, chapter 21 of the post-resurrection activity of Jesus Christ. Well, what he did after he rose from the dead. And, and as one commentator just simply stated, chapter 21 ties up some loose ends. For instance... As we'll see, it confirms that John is the beloved disciple who wrote this gospel, the one he kept talking about, the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's him. He's going to make it very clear it was him. The author is that guy. And it also dispels the rumor or the legend that was apparently was circling at the time that John would not die before Jesus returned, that he was going to live until Jesus came back. And apparently there was a rumor circulating, and, and he clears it up at the end. We'll see that. Secondly, uh, this chapter brings closure to the story of Peter, who denied the Lord on the night that he was arrested and was nowhere to be found at the crucifixion, and while we know that he, he, Jesus appeared to him on a number of occasions before this, this point, um, but, it, but it records here how Jesus restored Peter. And reinstated him as the leader of the apostolic band, which qualified him to serve in such a prominent role in the early church. And if you were to turn from John, uh, to John 20 to Acts 1 and 2, and all of a sudden you see Peter just going crazy for the gospel and, and preaching uh, his heart out on the day of Pentecost, you're like, whoa, what happened to Peter? How did that happen? Last time, last time I remember, he was, he was denying the Lord. He was nowhere to be found at the crucifixion, and then now he's the lead apostle. How did that happen? Well, John 21 fills that gap for us. Interesting the placement between John 21, right? The book of John and Acts 1. Very helpful. Thirdly, I think this chapter describes the relationship of the risen Christ with his disciples as they sought to fulfill their mission of telling the entire world the good news of salvation in Christ. And so even though Jesus was about to return to heaven, he wanted them to know that they would not be left to make it on their own. He would continue to be with them and and meet their needs, and they were to learn to live and minister in dependence on his power and provision. He wanted them to never forget their own inadequacy and that living and ministering in their own wisdom and strength, would accomplish nothing. Apart from Him, they would fail miserably. And He's really, I think, in these first fourteen verses, revisiting uh, the principles that He shared back in John fifteen. Turn back there quickly, and you'll remember this. This was a key text here uh, in in the upper room when um, the upper room discourse here, where Jesus was instructing His disciples and preparing. He pulled them. Pulled them all together uh, the the night before he was crucified and or night before he was arrested I should say and and uh, he was uh, shared Passover with them but he was also instructing them and equipping them for future ministry and this is what he said in John fifteen and tell me if if this is not uh, helpful uh, you know, helpful reminder that he's giving the disciples in John twenty one. He said in chapter 15, verse 1, "...I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit He takes away, and every branch that bears fruit He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You're already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches, and he who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit." For, here it is, if you don't have it underlined in your Bible yet, do it now. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. They had caught nothing. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they're burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. And here he summarizes this, 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 this teaching here, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The point being is that Jesus wanted his disciples to bear much fruit, to be fruitful, have, to have a, a very fruitful uh, and successful ministry of reaching many with the good news of salvation through his death and resurrection. And he was preparing them for that all the way back in the upper room, and now in John 21, he, he's, he's reminding them, I believe, of, of, these, of, of these principles, and, and mainly the principle, apart from me, you can do nothing. And if you want to be fruitful and not frustrated in your mission, then you need to rely on me, you need to depend on me. And again, this is a strategic time. Back in John 21, this is a strategic time for the disciples because they were about to launch out on the ultimate fishing expedition. Jesus was planning to use these fishermen in ways that were beyond their wildest imaginations to bring in a huge catch of souls. And rather than relying on their own expertise and experience, Jesus wanted the, to make sure that they relied on him. Rather than serving in their own strength, they were to serve according to the strength that He provides. Colossians 1.29, Paul said, For this purpose also I labor, striving according to His power, which mightily works within me. Kent Hughes, who's one of the finest commentators alive today, had this to say about this passage, verses 1 through 14, in general. He said this, quote, The seven of them... These seven disciples we see here in verse 2 are a microcosm of the church toiling amidst a restless world. Just get that picture in your mind. The tiny boat bearing the apostolic band portrays some abiding realities, realities that are important to our spiritual health. A primary obligation of the church in the world is fishing or evangelism. Hopefully you already know that, but this is a good reminder. that, That What are we about here? What is our mission? It's to be fishers of men. And it's not just to, it's to sit around and study fishing. We come together and we have lessons on fishing. We have fishing classes and fishing lessons, and we, we get better equipped to be better fishermen. But ultimately, it's all for a purpose to go out there and drop the line in the water and to fish, to go fishing. We are to be constantly fishing for men, he says, no matter how dark or cold the night. Fishing for men is exhausting time-consuming labor, and all of this, were to realize that without Christ, we can do nothing. You can witness and accomplish nothing. You can donate hundreds of hours to the church, and I would even say thousands of dollars to the church, and see nothing come of it. You can preach. That's what I'm doing right now. You can preach, and it amounts to nothing. The imperative of evangelism, hard work, and dependence on Christ are invaluable Lessons. And so there's lessons here in this this text for us this morning. And I think the basic lesson of this passage is that when we live and serve by our own initiative and in our own strength, we end up being frustrated and fruitless. We fail miserably. And the secret to success in life and ministry is to carefully follow Christ's direction and lead to completely depend on Christ and to consistently commune with Him. And so those are the three lessons that I want to draw from this text this morning. Hopefully you'll see them with me here. Uh, these are three lessons that we must learn in order to avoid a frustrating, fruitless life and ministry. Some of you may be here this morning feeling very frustrated, feeling very fruitless. You're, that, you're, you, you're, you're fishing and you're catching nothing. And again, that can relate to a whole lot of things, right? But particularly, ministering the gospel to others. Well, may it possibly be that you're, you, you haven't learned one of these lessons, that you're lacking one or more of these things. I can just tell you, as the one who studied this passage to preach it, is I'm very convicted this morning. About some areas of weakness in my life, some of these lessons you—you you would have thought I would learn, have learned already, and I—and I, and I think I have, I know them, but it's one thing to know something, and it's another thing to do something. And so, there may be things here that you've—you've—you've—you've uh, you've, you've, you've heard, you've all heard before, many times before. The question is, are you applying them? Are you putting them into practice? Are you practicing these principles? Well, what are these three lessons? Number one, we need to carefully follow Christ's lead. We need to carefully follow Christ's lead. Look at verse one. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. After these things, John says, after what things? Well, after Jesus had appeared to Mary Magdalene in the garden, uh, to Maria, uh, after the disciples' Uh, saw Jesus minus Thomas, and then the disciples saw Jesus with Thomas, and Thomas declared, my Lord and my God, and that's what we saw last week. And so he says, after these things, after we had, had already seen Jesus a few times, he manifested himself again, yet again, to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberius, and he manifested himself in this particular way. Sea of Tiberius. Uh, John is the only New Testament writer who referred to the Sea of Galilee as the Sea of Tiberius, and this al- alternate reference was derived from the city that was uh, on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, built around AD 25 by Herod Antipas and named in honor of Tiberius Caesar. And so, some referred to the sea as the, the Sea of Tiberius. Notice. Verse 2, it's the Sea of Galilee though, Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. So seven of the 11 disciples had traveled back to their homes in Galilee in obedience to Jesus' instruction. Again, this is where, exactly where these men had been originally called and commissioned by Jesus to become fishers of men. And this was ironically, also to serve as the location where Jesus gave them the Great Commission. Seems appropriate. We, we know that, you say, well, wait a minute, they went to a mountain, isn't that where he ascended? Well, we know that Jesus ascended from what location? The Mount of Olives. So they had to travel back to Jerusalem after this event uh, for Jesus' resurrection on the Mount of Olives. That's where the Lord's going to return, where he, where he came. You can see that in Acts chapter 1. But notice, John mentions Peter's name, Simon Peter, first in this list, because as we're about to see, he was the natural leader of this group of disciples. Um, the The others that John mentioned here were Thomas. The one we just uh, saw, it's good to see Thomas sticking close now, right? He had gotten away there, kind of a little moody man, was probably out uh, you know, licking his wounds about, hey, where's Jesus, and I lost my Savior, and I knew it was going to happen. It was the Eeyore, and he, he, lost, he, he was out of fellowship, and they went, grabbed him, pulled him back in. He saw Jesus, and he was, he was, he was with him again. He was back in the fold. Good, good reminder here, uh, st- th- Thomas is sticking close. You got Nathaniel, who was from Galilee, and James and John, doesn't mention it here, but that's who the sons of Zebedee were, James and John, the sons of thunder, as they were referred to. You kind of think of guys with like leather coats with like motorcycle jackets, The sons of thunder, these James and John. They were probably interesting characters, uh, to say the least. Um, Most likely, the two unnamed disciples, the two others of the disciples were together. These unnamed disciples were Peter's brother, Andrew, and Philip, who had close ties to Peter and Andrew, in fact, these were the same men who were introduced back in John chapter one, verse forty. Uh, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, and he first uh, and he found first his own brother Simon Peter and said, "We found the Messiah." So really, who who led Peter to Christ? It was his, it was his brother Andrew. Um, And then later on in in verse 44, now Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And so he was showing omniscience here. And so Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And so here's the the Galilean seven, all right? These are the guys that all came to know Christ in their home region of, of Galilee, and they're all back together again. Verse three, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, "We will also come with you." And they went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Now put yourself in these seven guys' sandals for a second. second. Okay? These guys had just returned from a roller coaster ride of emotions in Jerusalem, where they had witnessed the, the triumphal entry, and their emotions just swelled as they were anticipating the, the coming of the kingdom of the Messiah. Jesus was going to overthrow Rome and set up his throne in Jerusalem, and the, the kingdom would come, and, and then next thing you know, he's arrested and tried, and he's, he's, he's crucified, and, and their, their, all their emotions just go, and they go down in this time of depression, and all of a sudden, somebody says he's alive. And he, he comes, and then they see him. They, they, they he appears to them, and then all their emotions are just up like this. And so they're just like, you know, like, can you imagine how how physically and and, and mentally uh, exhausted they must have been? I mean, they were just, they were just a wreck right now. Their emotions were probably frazzled, and not to mention they were confused about their responsibilities and unsure about their future. All he said was, "Hey, go to Galilee, and I'll, I'll, you'll see me there again." I'm like, "Okay, cool," but then what? I don't know, I'm not a fisherman, but that sounds to me like a good time to go fishing. Right? I mean, hey, I need some R&R here. I need to get my mind off all this stuff. And, And so, for whatever reason, Peter decided he was going fishing, and the others naturally fell in line and agreed to go along with him. Again, showing his natural leadership ability there. Now, you may realize this, but never has a fishing trip been more scrutinized and judged than this one. I mean you can read commentator after commentator after commentator saying that Peter's decision to go fishing was an act of direct disobedience. Or it was an indication that he was so discouraged about denying the Lord three times that he decided to return to his former occupation. I'll just forget it all. I'm going to go I'm gonna go back and be a fisherman. That may be true. I don't see reason to believe that from the text. Is it too simplistic just to say that these guys were back in their old stomping grounds doing what they, they always did, right? When the, when the boys come back together, right, come back from college or get back together for a what, what do you do? You go fishing. You go do something that you enjoy. And they, they didn't know quite what to do while they're waiting for Jesus to show up and provide them with further instructions. And rather than just sitting around idle, they, they did what was most familiar to them. They, they went fishing. And if it wasn't just to kill time, it may have been to relieve stress, or maybe maybe they had to make a living, and they said, hey, our families still need to eat here, and we need to provide for our families. And so while there seems to be no indication here in the text that they were sinning by taking a fishing expedition, we can all see in the text that it was clearly not blessed by the Lord until he got there. It says they went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. I mean, that is not the kind of fishing trip you want to go on. The reason why you go on a fishing trip is to catch stuff, big stuff, lots of stuff, and to come back and say, "Hey, how the fishing trip go?" Ah, uh, not very good. We didn't you catch, catch anything. Oh, we didn't catch a thing. Are you? You can catch anything. And by the way, these disciples were professional fishermen. It's what they did for a living. They knew a little bit about fishing. And yet it's interesting, in the Gospels, they never caught any fish without Jesus' assistance. It's kind of funny, you think about it. Nowhere do you see them catching fish without Jesus' help. You think he was trying to make a point that they would never forget? Again, their lack of success here was not due to a lack of effort or a lack of knowledge. They were sincere, they were knowledgeable, hard-working fishermen. And again, I think this is just an important reminder to us here not to rush ahead of the Lord, but wait for His direction and blessing on everything that we do. Listen, you may be sincerely and knowledgeably serving the Lord and diligently working to win people to Christ But you're not seeing any results. Well, don't forget, God is the only one who can save lost souls. And without his direct leading and involvement in the process of fishing for men, all your efforts are useless. You will never catch a single thing. You will never catch a single soul on your own. It's impossible. Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in what? Vain who build it, unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. And so the first lesson that we can learn here from this this story is that we need to to carefully follow Christ's lead. We need to carefully follow Christ's lead. They They had kind of launched out there on their own, hadn't they? Kind of doing their own thing. And so Jesus used it as a a teachable moment. Which leads us to the second lesson, which is closely tied to the first lesson, and that is we need to learn to completely depend on Christ. We need to learn to completely depend on Christ. Look at verse 4. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And so as the dawn was breaking in the east over the Golan Heights, and the sun was breaking out over the sea. I've been there. I've actually been there in the water with Sam Hinojosa. Where are you, man? We were taking pictures of you. other, swimming out in the Sea of Galilee at sunrise. It was so awesome. And, and so it says that it was at that same time of day that Jesus appeared, you, right? You, you, when you go fishing, you fish at night or early in the morning, right, because the sun's not out. and fish come to the surface. And so the best time to fish is is at night or early in the morning before the sun comes up. And so Jesus appears on the shore at dawn. And yet it says I didn't recognize him. And it may have been because it was just still too dark or he was still too far away, 100 yards. I take my glasses off. I can't see who's sitting in the back row. I don't know. They didn't have glasses back then. Maybe they had good eyesight. I'm not sure. But Taking the fa- those factors into, into account here, there's reasons why they may have not recognized him or they may have seen him perfectly, but he chose not to reveal himself to them until after he taught them a lesson. That seemed to be kind of what he was doing these days. He'd come alongside these disciples on the road to Emmaus and, and they wouldn't recognize him until after he broke bread and had taught them everything he needed to teach them from the scriptures and broke bread and then showed them his hands and they're like, "Whoa!" They saw him, right? Same thing. Uh, the disciples didn't, uh, didn't, didn't automatically recognize him for some reason. Verse 5, so Jesus said to them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? <laughs> that was the last thing they wanted anybody to ask them, right? That's kind of embarrassing for a fisherman to admit, right? I mean, hey, if you're, good at, you're a good fisherman, you, it's kind of like takes a hit on your pride there. Yeah, I didn't catch anything. So he asked them if they had caught any fish, and, and they had to admit that after an entire night of fishing, they hadn't caught one measly fish. They said, no. They answered him, no. They, I mean, these were frustrated fishermen here. Verse 6, and he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find a catch. Again, at this point, as far as the disciples knew, this was just some stranger wandering along the shore who had the audacity to advise these expert fishermen how to fish. You serious? You don't think we know what we're doing out here? You You think the fish know the difference between the left side of the boat and the right side of the boat? We've been chucking that net on both sides, okay? Front and back, all over the place. There ain't no fish out here. And yet there must have been some authority in how he said it It says, so they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Question is a fair question. Do do fish know the difference between the left side of the boat and the right side of the boat? Well, they do if the one who created them tells them what side of the boat to go on. And that's exactly what we see here. Jesus has sovereignly rerouted the fish away from their boat all night long, and now he miraculously directed a massive school of fish back right, side, right, right on the right side of the boat. They got so many fish, they couldn't pull them all in. So next time you're out there, guys, or you're fishing, right? And you don't come back with nothing. Just say, well, hey, God's sovereign. He, he made all the fish go on the other side of the lake. We, you know. Or hey, God brought this huge bass right up next to my boat. up. It was God. God gets all the glory for that. It wasn't my expertise, right? God controls the fish in Lake Conroe. Okay, don't over-spiritualize it. (laughs) Again, what are we looking at here, okay? Successful service and soul winning, that's what we're talking about, fishing for men, are the result of following the Lord's direction, obeying his commands. He said, hey, throw it over the right hand. What did they do? They obeyed. They did what he said. And so it's, it 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 comes. Successful soul winning is the result of following the Lord's direction and depending on Him. Verse seven. Therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who's that again? That's John. Said to Peter, "It's the Lord." I mean, this 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 was a déjà vu. Whoa, whoa, we, we've seen this before somewhere, uh, right? This, was the, this, was a, this, this miraculous catch of fish was a dead giveaway who this guy on the shore was. Because he had done this before, they'd experienced this already. And so he instantly realized this was no stranger, it was Jesus. And as one commentator said, characteristically, John was quicker to perceive, Peter was quicker to act. And as soon as Peter heard John say, it's the Lord, in typical Peter-like fashion, he, he grabbed the robe that he had taken off and stripped down to work. He pulled that thing on and, and he dove. It says he threw himself into the sea. I love that, that language there. Sounds very Peter-like, just, just threw himself. I don't know if he dove, cannonballed, flopped, whatever. He just couldn't get to Jesus fast enough. And he was swimming as fast as he could get, go to get to Jesus. It says that in the text. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. This is a, a huge contrast, by the way, to how Peter responded the first time this happened. Remember back in Luke chapter 5, when this happened the first time? Did Peter want to run or swim towards Jesus? He was in the boat with him. He didn't have to do that, but what did he do? He wanted to, he didn't want to get away from Jesus. He wanted Jesus to get away from him. He couldn't get away from Jesus fast enough. Why? Because he, he recognized Christ. He was struck by Christ's deity, and he, he fell on his face in a pile of fish, and he begged Jesus to depart from him because he was a what? Sinful man. Had anything changed about that fact? Was, was Peter still the same sinful guy? Absolutely. In fact, he had just shown that by denying the Lord three times. So that part had changed. And so we might assume that Peter would have responded in a similar way when, when John says, hey, it's, it's the Lord. He's like, oh, yeah. Oh, mm. Okay, why don't you go? I'm going to work on getting these fish together. And You might think that's how he would respond because even though... He was discouraged and embarrassed by his sin, right? But what had changed? What had changed? He now knew Jesus as his gracious Savior and Lord who loves to forgive sin. And so he couldn't get to him fast enough. What, a, what, a, what an encouragement for us. What a good example for us when we mess up, when we sin. When we blow it big time, when we even deny the Lord, our tendency is to what? Drop our head and move away from the Lord and think he's disappointed with us. But hey, listen, if he is your Lord and Savior, you know he loves to forgive. When we mess up, we should run to him, swim to him, if you will, as fast as you can, knowing that he's going to forgive you and he's going to embrace you. And he's going to restore you. And we're going to see that, Lord willing, next week. That that's exactly what he did with Peter. Don't hesitate to run back into the presence of Christ when you mess up, when you blow up, when you sin. And again, this I think just this, this shows that even though he had denied the Lord three times, he, he truly loved Christ. He did. As the conversation He was about to have what Jesus makes clear in verses 15 to 17. Three times, Jesus asked him, do you love me? Peter, do you really love me? And all three times he said, absolutely. You know I love you. Verse 8, but the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. What a sight that must have been, The, the disciples slowly making their way, lugging Lugging their net full of fish. And again, what a great example here of the kind of results that we can achieve when we depend on the Lord to do the work of evangelism. We need to completely depend on Christ. And then lastly, the last lesson that we need to learn from this text is that we need to consistently commune with Christ. We need to consistently commune with Christ. Love, verses 9 through 11 here. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. And he said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. That's a great fish story, isn't it, guys? How many did you catch? 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And so when the disciples finally arrived on shore, Jesus had breakfast already prepared. He invited them to bring some of the fish they had just caught to place on that fire. One of my all-time favorite spots uh, to visit in Israel, it's the one, one of the spots I look forward to the most when we take a, a group uh, to Israel, it's called the Church of the Primacy of St. Peter. Sounds like a Catholic or Franciscan church, doesn't it? The the Church of the Primacy of St. Peter, and it is. it's It's a Franciscan chapel on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee that's constructed over this projection of black limestone on which Jesus allegedly cooked and served breakfast for disciples. So the Franciscans say, hey, we found the rock where he actually cooked This is breakfast, and so let's build a chapel over and have people come and worship the rock. And that's what happens. People come in, they bow down, and they kiss the rock, and they touch the rock, and they take a picture with the rock. And it's very sad. And not to mention sketchy. But outside that church is awesome. It's just a surreal setting outside, it's just the ideal place to read this passage along with the following verse, verses about Peter's restoration. But notice, he, he says, hey, bring some of the fish which you've now caught. And Jesus made a similar request earlier in his ministry before feeding the 5,000. He had asked the disciples, right, to bring what they had, and he would multiply it. And again, I think his request here uh, for the disciples to bring some of the fish they had caught was his way of showing them that he wanted to include them in his kingdom work, and they, he, would, he would continue to multiply and bless their efforts. And they had plenty of fish to choose from. They had 153, which was probably their curiosity. Man, how, what in the world? Look at, look at this. Uh, we, got, we got to count this up. That's just what fishermen do. They count, they measure, they record for the story, Right? they are got to have a story to tell after their fishing trip. And so that's what the 153. Now, the number of fish here has given rise to, to all sorts of allegorical, symbolic interpretations. For example, the, the church father, Jerome, said that there were 153 species of fish in the sea, which represented the, uh, the disciples' mission to all the nations of the world. And we know that it's true that the church would include, does include people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. But I think it's a stretch to say that there are 153 tribes or languages or nations. That's not the point. I think the point was it was a huge catch of fish, period. Which foreshadowed the huge catch of souls that, would they, that they would haul in, the disciples would haul in through Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost and beyond. And we, more than any other generation, of Christians are able to appreciate this imagery because we know that Christianity has become a universal religion. At that point, they didn't, they couldn't see that. We see it now, though—the huge haul of fish that Jesus is in the process of of bringing in, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, millions of people around the world coming to faith in Him. Verse twelve: Jesus said to them, "Come and have breakfast." None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. He served them breakfast. He was like, hey guys, the food's over there, help yourself. It's like they all sat down and he, he came and individually served each one of them. What a, what a beautiful picture that is. Verse 14, this is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. If you're counting, this is actually the seventh post-resurrection appearance of Jesus, but only the third time he appeared to his disciples as a group. We saw that in chapter 20, verse 19, verse 26. This is number three. And and this this is a significant appearance here because it was not so much to prove to them that he was alive. He had already proven that. This was, I think, simply to provide an opportunity for them to commune with the risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To commune with Christ. And so there they sat, a group of deniers and doubters and prideful men who in, just weeks before jockeyed for position at Christ's right and left hand. And yet Jesus is so gracious that he had forgiven them these sins and now invited them to commune with him in preparation for using them. And as one commentator rightly said, the Lord has always uses weak and sinful people to advance his kingdom because there are no other kinds of people. <laughs> it's not like, ah, you're a sinner. Ah, you're a sinner. I've got to find somebody who's not a sinner. No, that's all he's got to choose from. Isaiah 6 is a great example. Isaiah I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. Next thing you know, he's saying, here I am, send me. Seriously, God, you couldn't have found somebody else better than Isaiah? Nope. He's a sinner like everybody else. But guess what? I forgave him. He asked for my, he acknowledged his sin, and I forgave him, and I cleansed him, and, I, and then I used him. Not many wise, not many noble, right? That's who God chooses to serve him. First Corinthians chapter 1, God's power is perfected in our what? weakness. 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul said, I don't understand, but I'm just so thankful that God chose the worst sinner on the planet to be an apostle. That was Paul's testimony. And maybe it was because people would look at me and say, if he could save him, he could save anybody. Bruce Milnia. Helpful commentator said this, he said, These are ordinary men whom Jesus invited to his table of fellowship that day, public failures like Peter, known doubters like Thomas, loyal and faithful souls like Nathaniel, men of irascible temperament like the sons of Zebedee. These were, these were fiery dudes, James and John. They, they were the ones that said when they went into a town and, and um, the people rejected Christ, they said, hey, Jesus, why don't you just call down fire from heaven? Torch this place. That was the personality of James and John, the one who's writing this, this gospel. And then two others who did not even rate having their names mentioned. Background, folks, to that deeply human company, Jesus opens the riches of his friendship and also, therefore, to us. Christ wants to commune with us. And it is through communion with him that we become useful to him. One of the most convicting books that I've ever read in my lifetime is a book by a guy named Horatius Bonar titled Words to Winners of Souls. If you can find a copy of this, buy it and read it. Words to Winners of Souls by Horatius Bonar. And he asked the question in this little booklet: he says, whence came the success of men like Whitfield and Edwards, George Whitfield, and Jonathan Edwards, why may not the same success be ours? And he answers the question. He says, they were spiritual men and walked with God. It is a living fellowship with a living Savior, which transforming us into His image fits us for being able and successful ministers of the gospel. Without this, nothing else will avail neither orthodoxy, nor learning, nor eloquence, nor power of argument, nor zeal, nor fervor, will accomplish not without this. It is this that gives power to our words and persuasiveness to our arguments. From them that walk with him in holy, happy intercourse, a virtue seems to go forth, a blessed fragrance seems to encompass them wherever they go. Nearness to him, intimacy with him, assimilation to his character, these are the elements of a ministry of power. He says, our power in drawing men to Christ chiefly springs from the fullness of our personal joy in Him and the nearness of our personal communion with Him. The countenance that reflects most of Christ and shines most with His love and grace is most fitted to attract the gaze of a careless, giddy world and win restless souls from the fascinations of creature love and creature beauty. A ministry of power must be the fruit of a holy, peaceful, loving intimacy with the Lord. This is the grand secret of ministerial success. Communing with Christ. Having your quiet time. Spending time in His Word. Spending time talking to Him in prayer. So, how are you doing when it comes to carefully following Christ's lead and completely depending on the Lord and then here communing with Christ? Communing with Christ. May it be that one of these or all of these are lacking in your life right now, and that's why you're feeling so frustrated, why you're feeling so fruitless in your life and in your ministry? Several years after this occasion, Peter spoke of himself as a a true, reliable, trustworthy witness based on the fact that he had dined with Jesus after his resurrection. He had communed with Christ. And in Acts chapter 10, just listen, verse 40, this is what Peter said to Cornelius and his entire household. God raised Christ up on the third day and granted that He become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is to us who ate and drank with Him after He rose from the dead. And He ordered us to preach to the people, and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead, of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Listen, you may have missed last Sunday's opportunity to believe in Christ. Guess what? God loves you so much, he's giving you another opportunity. Because now Peter's preaching the same message here, that God appointed Christ as the judge of the living and the dead. In other words, the one that you will stand before someday, who will judge you for the way that you lived your life. And he says, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. You don't have to fear that day, that judgment day. If you know Jesus Christ, if you receive him by faith, you can enter his presence knowing that your sins are forgiven and you have nothing to fear. And so I ask you today, are you afraid to stand before Jesus someday? You don't need to. Believe in him today and he will forgive your sins and you can know him not as your judge, but as your Savior and your Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful text and how um, it just is so convicting, Lord, and all that we see in it, Lord, that we need to apply, that we fail to. And uh, we confess so often we're fruitless, frustrated fishermen because we're doing things in our own time, in our own way, in our own strength, in our own wisdom, and relying on our own expertise, and we thank you um, for this reminder that that you desire to use us, sinful as we may be. But we need to depend on you, and we need to follow your direction, and we need to learn to commune with you. And so I pray that you'd apply this message to our lives. We pray for your glory. We thank you that we don't have to fear you as our judge, but we can. I love you as our Lord. I pray you'd soften hearts this morning to receive the gospel for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.